0: So on March 22nd, 2016, uh, a Canadian politician by the name of Paluski Kiotuk, okay, that's his real name, uh, was on an expedition with his son and his nephew. Now, Paluski was a representative for Nunavut, Canada, and if you're not familiar with Canadian geography, I wasn't either, and that is about as far north as you can get. And so this expedition that these three individuals were on was, was essentially the Arctic tundra. You remember those days in, in grade school where you were learning about habitats and climates and things like that? Picture Arctic tundra. That's where they are. And so they're, they're about to go on this expedition that's about 150 miles from one city to the next, and they're going to, to travel by way of snowmobile. And I think of what I read was that it should take on average about 12 hours to complete this trek. And so in the middle of the overnight portion of their journey, a storm comes sweeping through and blankets of snow start pouring down. So imagine that, middle of the night, pitch black, blankets of snow. And it was so uh, disruptive and so disorienting that it took some time before they realized they had veered off course. And so when they finally realized they had lost the trail, they were now all of a sudden faced with what was ultimately a life-threatening decision. Do we try to find our way back to the trail and risk getting even further off course and jeopardizing anyone's ability to come and find us, or do we just stay put? So imagine that for a moment, literally in in the middle of the Arctic tundra, and, and you're having to face that sort of decision. Imagine the fear, imagine the concern, imagine the despair. Ultimately what they decided to do was to stay put. And, and because they were from that area, they had certain skills to know how to adapt to the environment. Paluski actually was able to construct a makeshift igloo that would serve as shelter uh, for their survival journey. Uh, the two younger boys were able to actually kill a caribou that served as their main source of food and nutrients during this survival period. But after they didn't arrive at their uh, destination and people began to realize that something was wrong, uh, they literally sent out an army to go find them. Uh, they, they dispatched the Canadian forces, armed forces. They, they sent two Hercules aircraft, the two twin uh, other aircraft, and then a, a military helicopter. And, and they went in full force with the intention to cover about 15,000 square kilometers. And so after about eight or nine days, right, with, with all these people searching, it was March 31st, 2016, where Pilewski said he, he had tears fill his eyes when he finally saw that first aircraft come and rescue him. It's a remarkable story. Um, tons of details that, that you could go in and, and read up upon even further. And, and I bring it to your attention, not so much to point the survival, right, not to highlight the, the survival instincts or the decisions or the wisdom. What really stood out to me as I was reading through this was the demonstration of a rescue and search party. Right, when I read that list of what they sent out to go find these three individuals, I was, I was kind of just amazed by it, right? Literally armed forces and helicopters and aircraft, like they were gonna do everything they could to go and find this person. It's, it's a tremendous story of rescue. And that's really what we're gonna talk about today. What does it take to, to be sent out and to rescue? And, and in order for us to prepare ourselves for this sort of conversation, I wanna try to give you a mental picture Okay, I want you to think about the sanctuary that you're sitting in right now. Okay, you don't have the view that I do, but you've seen it before. Imagine if we were going to dedicate a full day to try to just reach out to children. Anyone under the age of 18? And we filled this sanctuary with children. Now, I don't know exactly how many we could fit in here. I, I, my estimate would be about 1,000, and that's probably overshooting it. But if, if you literally had every row packed with a child in the balcony. I think we'd get close to about 1,000. So let's say we had this sanctuary packed with about 1,000 children. And on one day, we were actually able to hold up to about six different services with different children in each service. Can you picture that? That's how many children every day are orphaned. Most estimates, when you start talking about caring for the orphan, they're hard to pinpoint They're hard to track, but most estimates would say around 5,700 children are orphaned each day. That's what we're talking about today. UNICEF would estimate the numbers to be 153 million worldwide. Now, when you start talking about orphan and and caring for the orphan, it's, it's a complex discussion, but it's a necessary one and one that we're gonna to have today. And when you, you hear numbers like 153 million, it's easy to get overwhelmed and to think, how in the world do we address an issue like that? But, but here's the good news, church. Before you get overwhelmed, let me tell you the good news. Even though there's 153 million orphans around the world, there's 2.3 billion Christians. That's the good news. If just 6% of the global body of Christ would embrace the cause of the fatherless, we could eradicate it. There are enough of us that every one of those orphans could have up to 15 parents. That's the good news. The reality is, is that God wants to send out his church. He wants to send out his army and rescue these children. And that's the story that I want us to discuss today. But I want us to do so with a biblical framework. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, good job, you passed, good job. Just a few more weeks, church. We're just in the book a few more weeks and then I promise we're gonna do something different for Advent. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter nine. And as you're turning there, uh, this is one of the more uh, familiar stories, one of the more well-known stories in the New Testament. And so we're gonna read through it in its entirety, verses one through 19, and we're gonna use this as a framework for our discussion of how we can be a church that takes up the cause of the fatherless and the orphan. So if you can pick up with me, chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He has come here with an authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I love this story. And you might be sitting there going, what in the world does Saul's conversion have to do with caring for the orphan? And, And there are several things that I think we can extract from this passage today that can serve is a framework to help answer that question. But in order for us to to approach it appropriately, I want us to give special attention to one particular figure in this story. Think about all the notable figures that have emerged so far in the book of Acts. We've had Jesus, we've had Peter, we've had John, we've had Stephen and Philip, and now we have the emergence of Saul that's about to be transformed into Paul and take center stage for the rest of the book of Acts, but before that transition can occur, we must not look past one of the great heroes of the faith, Ananias, who we have been told is a disciple in Damascus. And that's perhaps where we get kind of our first framework uh, for today's discussion, is that what we see in Ananias is that the gospel has arrived in Damascus. There are faithful followers seeking to be devoted to Jesus. And that's kind of where this all begins is a clear understanding of our identity as disciples, right? That, that word means that we are those who are gonna be students of, one who mimics the acts of their teacher. We are gonna follow Jesus through obedience to the things that he calls us to. And I put that in front of us because it is easy for us to approach a conversation like Orphan Sunday and almost immediately detach and say, well, I don't know that this is really gonna apply to me because I don't feel called to adopt. And so we kind of look around and see if somebody else might respond to this call when the reality is, is that this call, this word is for all those who would consider themselves a disciple. So hear me, every single one of us has a responsibility to respond to this word. Now we may engage it differently, but every single one of us needs to respond because this is a call towards those who follow Christ. Now what is the specific call? One of the things that I think is really telling about this exchange is that we see that Jesus knows us by name. I love that. Whether it was Saul or Ananias, he knows us by name and that takes us back to how Jesus taught in John chapter 10 when he started referring to himself as the gate or the good shepherd and he said, I will call them out and lead them out and my sheep will follow me because they will know the sound of my voice. And you get this great juxtaposition between Saul and Ananias. He calls out Saul by name. Why do you persecute me? And the answer that Saul provides is very telling. He says, who are you? He has no clue who this voice belongs to. And in that response, we see distance. We see unfamiliarity. But you compare that in Ananias with just one single call of his name, Ananias, and the immediate response, yes, Lord. He knows exactly who is speaking because he's a follower, right? And so that's a great juxtaposition for you and I to consider today because we know that when we consider what God is calling us to do, when we consider what our lives need to look like and what our direction and our path needs to pursue, when we think about all those things, there are all these different voices that we could pay attention to and that could lead us this way or that way. And then on one hand, we have those that are confused, they're going to say, who are you? And on the other hand, we have those that are gonna recognize the voice of their Lord as soon as he speaks and say, yes, Lord, what about you? Are you able to recognize the voice of your Savior when he calls and when he speaks? Do you hear it? And when we think about what it means to care for the orphan, let me be very clear to you today. Our Father, our Creator, our Savior has spoken. Right? Think about all the different references that we have in the scriptures, let me just give you a few. Deuteronomy chapter 10 tells us, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you. Deuteronomy twenty four seventeen is a word of instruction. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. Psalm 68 speaks again to the father's heart, saying that he is a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. Psalm 82 is a plea and a cry, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Isaiah 1, 17, a word of instruction to the Lord's people, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless. And then most famously, James 1, 27, religion that our God, our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. He knows us by name and he has spoken. Do you hear his voice? He has called us and we must hear and we must follow the example of Ananias with a quick response of yes, Lord. Now when he calls, he gives a specific task. And I love what he lays out for Ananias here. He tells him, he says, now I want you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. I love that. For some (laughs) reason it just feels so casual. It's like, he's like, you know, it's half a mile past the Starbucks on your left, right? And he's just giving the specificity that I just love in these instructions. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. There you're going to find a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. And he has had a vision that a man named Ananias is going to come and lay hands on him and restore his sight. It's a very specific task. And there are several things that we see uh, embedded within that task that God is now giving to Ananias. First of all is this call to go. How many times do we see it in Scripture? Whether it's with Abraham to go to a land that I will show you, or it's the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, or here with Ananias, go to the house on on Straight Street. Over and over again, we see that a theme to God's call is to go. The church is to be active. We are to rise and to move, not sit and be stagnant. We we do not sit and watch the kingdom of God unfold. We are to participate in it. We are called to go. And part of what we also see in this instruction is that God reveals his heart, that he is close to the vulnerable. I love that he says he is praying. He knows Saul. Think about Saul's journey, right? He was was on this path of destruction. He was on this path to, to create harm. And all of a sudden, the storm of this great white light disrupted him and moved him off course And now he is perhaps in the most vulnerable state of his entire life, blind, refusing to eat and drink. Imagine the fear, imagine the despair and the concern, and so naturally he's crying out to God, and what God reveals in his statement to Ananias is he hears Saul's prayers. Our God is close to the vulnerable. He hears their prayers, and more often than not, it's not just that he hears their prayers, but he desires restoration. Right? He's sending Ananias to restore Saul, to restore his sight. God is a God who doesn't want to leave us in vulnerability but bring us out of it and bring us into reconciliation, into restoration. And what's amazing about it that we also see here is he wants us to be that agent of change. God could just speak it. He could just do it. But instead, he chooses Ananias. You go be the agent, the ambassador of this restoration that I desire for this man. We're called to go, he's close to the vulnerable. He desires restoration and he wants us to be a part. So when you think about the cause of the fatherless, you think about the orphan in our midst, he's calling us, church, to rise and to go. He's teaching us that he is close to the vulnerable. He hears their prayers and he desires to restore them and save them and he wants us to be that angel of restoration. And so in order for us to think about the specifics of this task, how do we do this practically as a church. There, there's, there's some things I wanna elaborate on a little bit in detail today to make sure that we have a more holistic understanding of what this looks like because even the terminology can be confusing, right? You, you hear the word orphan and a lot of times the, the assumption is there is a child that has lost both of their parents and is living in an orphanage. And while that absolutely is true in, in a lot of the cases, it is not the majority of the situation, right? In fact, Uh, A lot of times you have more specific terminology that would refer to a child that has lost just one parent would be known as a single orphan, whereas a child that's lost both parents is a double orphan. The point is, is that there are many children who have been separated from parental care and still have living family members. That's very common. And the reason that we need to be aware of that is because what a, a, a massive amount of research would teach you and a a tremendous amount of evidence and studies have shown is that while there is institutional care available, what is absolutely ideal for a child that has been removed from some form of parental uh, uh, separation has to be brought back into some form of a family environment. That is so much healthier, whether it's back with some living family members or it's a new family, whatever it is, to bring that child into some sort of environment of a family is so much better than any sort of institutional care. And so there's a lot of complex issues and factors that create this parental separation, right? Think, think of some of the factors. Uh, perhaps the leading reason that children can be separated from this sort of familial relationship is poverty. It's the leading reason. In fact, even in Europe, there was a study that was done recently that 90% of the children that had been removed or considered orphaned was a result of poverty and homelessness, 90%. All right, so you have parents that are either uh, not financially able or concerned or or for a variety of reasons are choosing that this is perhaps better for my child because of an issue of poverty. You have issues of alcohol and drug abuse, right? We see this uh, extensively in our culture with the opioid crisis and so many other situations where, where parents are caught into the bonds of addiction and as a result, it's no longer safe for that child to be in that home, which correlates to some other issues, abuse and neglect. A lot of times there has to be this intervention from a government agency or a third party that for the well-being of the child is gonna say, we're gonna take them out of this situation because it's not safe for them. You have issues like disease. Ethiopia, the, the predominating factor in Ethiopia is, is the fact that a parent is often uh, diagnosed with HIV or AIDS. And as a result, there creates all this separation. So there's a, there's a disease issue at times. You have disabilities that play a factor. A lot of times these families don't have the resources, they don't have the means, they don't have the access to certain care that a lot of these children um, need when they're born with different issues. And so as a result, they give them up as a way in hopes that somebody else can meet those needs. Sometimes painfully and unfortunately, those children are facing uh, social stigmas within that culture. And there's too much shame and too much dishonor that would be applied to that family by caring for a child with some of those needs. And so they go ahead and they, they surrender them to someone else. A lot of times you have emergency situations, an earthquake takes place, a a, a tsunami, a natural disaster, and families are separated. And a lot of times, again, parents might have to surrender their child to the care of another because they know that maybe this institution is going to be better equipped to provide these basic needs of food, water, and shelter. And sometimes they're never reunited. There are a number of different factors that create the orphan. And sometimes they have family, sometimes they don't, and there are so many different ways that we can help. And so here's the holistic response to this task for a church. We, we have to look at it beyond the lens of adoption. Now we have to include that, but we have to include others. Let's think about a more holistic approach. On one level as a church, we need to mobile ourselves towards family preservation. Right? Think about these issues. Some of them are, are systemic. Some of them are ongoing that we can maybe help Minister to families so that they can stay together. Right, poverty, addiction—some of these things that can hopefully provide healing and keep families in a stable environment together. If we would just engage in a more meaningful and intentional way. Let me give you an example of one of the ways that we've done this so far here as a church. Many of you are familiar with the organization Care Portal. It's—it's it's basically a communication system that works between child protection service caseworkers and churches. And when there are, there are needs that CPS uh, caseworkers see with different families, they notify a network of churches and say, hey, does anybody have a crib? Because if we can't get this family a crib, this child might be removed from their home. And so churches respond and they mobilize. And in a perfect scenario, it's not always easy to do, but in a, in a perfect scenario, we respond, we, we provide these needs, you can build relationships, you can get to know more about what's actually creating the issues here. You have all these different ways to help preserve a family. Family preservation has to be part of it. Any of us can help with that. Doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your situation. You have reunification. This is where we start talking about fostering. Right? That a lot of times what we need to do is create a safe place for a child to come while a family gets things put together or while a government can figure out where are their siblings or are their other living relatives. We just need to be a temporary solution in hopes that that child can be reunified with somebody within their family. And there are so many different nuances to fostering, so many different ways that you could do it, ways that you can support foster families, but reunification should be a goal. When we see a child reunified with siblings or with family members, that should be celebrated. And then if all those things don't work, if we can't preserve the family, we can't reunify the family, then we look to adoption. This is where we find families that say, come here, come to us. Come to our home, be our son, be our daughter. A church needs to have all three of those responses, and then we need a community of support that can rally around people that are engaging in all those ways. So that's why it's for all of us. That's a pretty significant task. It can be overwhelming, just as this was overwhelming to Ananias. And did you see his response? Notice how he responds when God gives the specifics of the task. He says, yeah, I, I know of this man, and all the harm that he's brought to your people. And I also know that he's come here with the authority of the chief priest to imprison anyone that calls on your name. And so essentially what Ananias is saying is, are you sure? This sounds very risky. This could be very difficult for me. I might be putting my own life in jeopardy. This could cost me comfort, this could cost me pain, this could put me in prison, this could cost me my life. Are you sure this is what I'm to do? And don't we respond in similar ways when we think about what it means to care for the fatherless? Think of all the questions that typically run into our minds. Are you sure this is really for me? What will this do to my existing family? How will this impact my children at home already? Will we be able to respond healthily to this? What about the financial costs associated with it? What about a child that has all this trauma? I don't feel like I'm equipped for all those different things and all these different needs that they're gonna have. I don't know if I'm capable of all those things. And what if the, the extended birth family gets, gets involved again and they, there's conflict there? And what if I don't love this child the same way that I love my own child? Or what if I do love this child and then they're taken from me and we have all these what ifs and all these fears? And we bring them before the Lord, just as Ananias did. Here's what I love about how God responds to Ananias. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Ananias, don't worry. You won't be harmed. This will go smoothly. This will go easy. Don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't speak about Ananias' future. He talks about Saul's. He says, go, this is my chosen instrument. I have a plan for him, I have a future for him, and that's why you're going. William James Jennings says it so eloquently, Ananias gets up and he goes armed with Saul's future, not his own. (laughs) That's how we should move as well. I guarantee you to respond to the cause of the fatherless is not easy. And it is going to create an uncertainty of what it might mean for you. But I assure you that God's not going to necessarily say, don't worry. I'm going to call you to comfort. I'm going to call you to luxury. No, what he's going to call us to is something meaningful. And what he wants us to do is to move into this call armed with their future above our own. What he's saying is every child matters. They're mine. I have a future for them. And that's why you go. And that's why you respond. And so that's what compels Ananias to embrace this difficult journey. And once they actually meet, we see this amazing development, right? I mean, you see the restoration. You see the healing. You see that his strength is regained. You see that Saul is baptized. It's an amazing amazing story of transformation. But what I want to highlight for us is the first interaction, right? When Ananias approaches Saul, he lays hands on him. And in that we see an incredible expression of love and affection. Right? He doesn't speak to him from a distance. Notice this was actually the specifics that God put in the call. There's a man, Saul, and he's had a vision that a man named Ananias is gonna come to him and place his hands on him and restore his sight. There's something powerful about the healing gesture of affection. Something that does, that takes place when we have that sort of proximity. We see this in Jesus' ministry as well, don't we? In Matthew 8 when he heals the leper. And the leper cries out and says, heal me, make me clean. And Jesus could have just spoken it. He could have just sent him on his way. But what does he do? He does the unthinkable. He touches him and he says, be clean. And in that gesture, we see that Jesus looks beyond the disease, looks beyond the trauma, looks beyond the circumstances, and looks to the soul. There is a healing power that comes with the bonds of affection. Here's Saul, vulnerable, and the people he's been chasing, the person that he was seeking to imprison, reaches out and puts his hand on him. Healing power of affection. And that touch is matched with an incredible term, an incredible word, as Ananias says, brother. In that comment, we see that that Ananias is welcoming Saul into the family of believers. There is a bond that is now being created that supersedes anything they had known before. Here is this enemy, and what we see is that through this portrayal, through this story, is a reminder that once again, God, God calls us to a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor. Yes, even our enemies. And imagine Saul with with all that confusion, all that vulnerability, and the first thing he hears from those he was persecuting was the word brother. And the walls within his heart come crumbling down. That's how we should pursue the cause of the fatherless. We go with the healing power of affection. We offer out a hand that tells a child, I'm going to be the one to help guide you across the street. I'm going to be the one that can help wipe your tears. I'm going to be the one that can give you a loving embrace to remind you you are home. And I know that you've gone through this life and the world has called you many names. But I'm going to call you son and daughter. And the walls come crumbling down within their souls. That's how he sends us. That's the story of rescue that we see played out in Acts chapter 9. And so what's our response today? Let me start to close with just a few practical steps for us. The first thing I want you to do is to begin to thoughtfully consider, what's my role in all this? Do I need to be someone that helps with preservation? Can, can I help contribute my time to preserve families? Do I need to be somebody that can, that can help in the area of fostering? Maybe it's with respite care. Maybe it's to be a, a, a substitute. Maybe it's to be an actual foster family. Is God calling our family to adopt? Can I tell you that one of the things that I'm laying before the Lord right now is that God would begin to stir the hearts of this congregation and we would see new families rise up and say, we'll welcome them into our home and we will actively participate in that. But what is your specific role? Right, begin to consider those things. And one way to practically help discern that is to come on Tuesday. This truly is for everyone. It's gonna be a a broad conversation for us to hear all the different ways that people can respond and take up the cause of the fatherless. And so if you have that time, come on Tuesday, help discern with those conversations. But ultimately, it's gonna be a matter of prayer. That's at least our first response today. It has to start with prayer. And so how do we pray intentionally? How do we focus these efforts? Well, I want us to narrow our scope I mentioned the number 153 million earlier. That's a large number. It's hard to get our minds wrapped around it. So let's incrementally work our ways down a little bit. If you think about it domestically, most estimates would tell us there are about 400,000 children in the foster care system in the United States. 400,000. If you think about Texas's role, we are one of the two largest states that contribute to that number. There are close estimates of around 31,000 children in the foster care system in Texas. If You get down to Tarrant County. At the end of September, there are 1,270 children in the foster care system. That's 1,270 children or families that we could intentionally begin to work in the areas of preservation, reunification, or adoption. At the end of September, there were 272 children waiting for adoption in this county. Now we should all be able to put our minds around that number. We should all be able to really begin to understand what the need actually is. But I want us to get even more focused, and this is where we're gonna turn our attention to your bracelets, and as as you can get those out, I'm gonna ask the band to go ahead and come forward because we're gonna have a song to help guide this time as well. But if you have your bracelets, Here in a second, I'm gonna give you four names, right? And and when I show these names, I want you to consider which one the Lord is laying on your heart. And I want you to take the time and and grab that that Sharpie and pass it along your row. Again, be careful, you gotta wait at least five seconds before touching it, otherwise it'll smudge. And whichever heart, or whichever name is laid on your heart, I want you to write it in. Ryan, why don't you go ahead and put those names on the screen. And let me tell you a little bit of a background behind these names. In October, we had Gladney come and spend some time with us. And they told us that there was this new kind of initiative that they were working on, that they were gonna have a home for girls. And part of their shift in focus was that they had identified through the research and through conversations within our community that the children that were most at risk for not finding a home were teenage girls. And they said, you know what, we have this facility. We need to do something with it. And so let's, let's open it up to these girls that need a home. They currently have four young girls, and those are the four names you see on the screen. So I want you to go ahead and take those Sharpies. Pick one and begin writing it on your bracelet. These bracelets come from Christian Alliance for Orphans, which is a organization that has helped mobilize Orphan Sunday across the world. And what they're asking churches to do all over the world is say, look, we know these numbers are big. Pick one. Pick one child that needs a home and commit to praying for them. And so that's what we're going to do. And my, my sense is that with the Spirit's leading, that however he prompts you today, that collectively as a church we'll be praying for all four of these young girls in our community and praying for them to find a home and find a family. And so here in a moment we're going to have a song that's going to help focus our thoughts as you begin to pray for whatever name you've written on your bracelet. And here's what I want you to be thinking of is that these young girls have also had their paths disrupted some storm that we don't know has come into their life and has led them off course. Could be for a variety of reasons, but I assure you there are many days and many moments where they sit there and they are f- afraid. They're concerned, they're angry, they're desperate, and they're crying out for help. And so this song that is about to be sung, to me, captures the heart of our Father, and gives us words that I believe need to be spoken to these young girls, right? Words that that assure them that they are not hidden, they're not forgotten, they're not hopeless, right? That, That though they may be broken, maybe they've lost some of their innocence, God sees them and he's gonna be their shield, he's gonna be their armor, and the way he's gonna share that assurance with them is he's gonna send out his church. He's gonna send out his people, even into the darkest night, no matter how far we must have to march to get there to them, he's gonna send out his army and rescue these girls. And so as we have this song offered as a reminder to us, let's pray that those things would become a reality for these four girls.